My name is Kyle Dunham, and I am the Associate Professor of Old Testament here at the seminary. And uh, if I haven't made your acquaintance uh, in the past, I'd enjoy getting to know you, so make sure to uh, come up and talk to me, and I'd, I'd be glad to make your acquaintance. Uh, I teach Old Testament here at the seminary, so Hebrew, Old Testament, and a lot of things related to that. And so my topic this morning is Caring for the Afflicted, Principles from the Book of Job. Uh, what started me a little bit on this um, particular topic and interest was my dissertation. So uh, as I was working on the book of Job, actually it started in seminary. I took a, a class, Hebrew Exegesis of Job, and I studied the first counselor, Eliphaz, and I looked at his uh, dream sequence in chapter 4, and it was very intriguing to me. And one of the questions that came up that I uh, think about with respect to Job and has been asked of me uh, with respect to Job a lot is, what do we make of the friends? How are we to understand Job's three friends? Are they good guys on the whole? Are they bad guys on the whole? Is their counsel legitimate or not legitimate? Uh, and the picture is complicated a little bit because Paul quotes from Eliphaz in 1 Corinthians 3 seemingly in a positive way. He quotes Eliphaz's statement uh, that God catches the wise in their craftiness. And so as I thought about that, is that an indication that he's legitimating their counsel? Well, we have to balance that, of course, with the end of the book, because by the end of the book, uh, we know the Lord says uh, that he's angry with the three friends because they have not spoken rightly to him as Job had. And so we have to try to counterbalance what does that mean? What, in what sense has Job spoken rightly to the Lord uh, in a way that would be different from the friends? Because if you read through the book of Job, you come to the conclusion that Job has some very forceful things to say to God, right? At different turns in the book, uh, he accuses God of injustice. He says that he wishes he could take God to court. He would lay down his charge. He would, uh, in his thinking, exonerate himself in a court of law because he's, he's questioning whether God's justice has been consistently applied in his case. And so I focused on the uh, chief counselor of the three, Eliphaz, the primary counselor, to look at uh, what his counsel entailed. And so I want to try to weave this with an idea of counseling in general because I think Job can help us as we think of the best ways to care for the afflicted, the best ways to counsel and encourage people who are suffering. Uh, Job is a premier example of how to lead people through deep waters and through affliction. Uh, so we want to think about that together. So if you have your Bibles, I wanted to begin by looking at the first several verses just to set the context of what's going on. It's important to get a, an accurate picture of who Job is and what the nature of the setting for the narrative is. So in Job 1, verses 1 through 5, we're introduced to this character. It says, There was a man in the land of Uz his, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So we're introduced to this character, Job, and what I think is important to get right from the outset of the story is how he's characterized in verse 1. He's blameless and upright. He fears God and turns from evil. These phrases, especially the latter two, will be repeated in chapter 28 as the epitome of what wisdom is. And so we're introduced to Job, the character who is a man of integrity and who is characterized by wisdom. He fears God. He turns away from evil. And the reason that I think this is important is that we understand Job is not, he's not on the one hand perfect, that is to say he's not sinless, and yet he is genuinely a man of integrity. And that's what sets up the tension of the contest, so to speak, that follows, that Job is suffering despite the fact that he is genuinely a man of integrity, that he is uh, one whose character is actually above reproach. And so the friends come and they want to help 
Job through his affliction, and I think we can learn some important principles uh, that will become evident as we work through uh, some of the implications of the book of Job. Let me just mention, uh, if you didn't get a handout, the handouts are at the back, and uh, I'll be following that as we work through uh, some implications for the book of Job, so you want to have access to that uh, if you don't already. All right, so we want to begin by looking at some background to the book of Job. One of the questions that's asked about Job is, uh, who is this character? Is he a real person, or is the book of Job simply a parable? This is one of the uh, interpretive questions that revolves uh, around the, the meaning of the book. And as you look at the name Job, it's a name that's commonly attested uh, in the patriarchal period down to the time of the judges, and so that adds credence to the fact that these were actual people. Beyond that, it's also attested in other places in the Bible. So, for instance, in Ezekiel 14, 14, uh, there uh, the Lord says this, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in this city, they would deliver but their own lives. So we know that Ezekiel attests to Job as a character, uh, a person who had integrity. Uh, We know that Job is mentioned in the book of James. In James chapter 5 and verse 11, uh, James says, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So these would indicate that Job was an actual historical person, uh, that his name uh, is attested outside of Scripture as well, as I mentioned, in inscriptions. And so one of the, the things that I derive from this is uh, the meaning of his name. There's a little bit of a discussion about the meaning of his name, but the most likely uh, answer is that his name focuses on innocent suffering. His name likely means uh, where is my father? And that's kind of a, a way of thinking about how the book is framed. Job is trying to wrestle with God, his divine father, and come to a conclusion about why he is suffering. Uh, it's important, I think, to remember that uh, Job's friends are talking to Job about God, but Job is principally talking to God throughout the book. If you follow his speeches, he is talking to God. He's framing his angst with respect to God and who he is and his character and justice and all these sorts of things. So even the name Job uh, undergirds this role of wrestling with God. Ultimately, Job's dispute is not with the friends around him. His, his contest, if you will, his angst is with God. Why is God in his sovereignty allowing this to happen? And often when we're afflicted, that's a question that comes to mind, right? How does what I'm experiencing match with what I know of God's sovereignty? How do I resolve the seeming tension between the suffering I'm going through and what I know to be true of God? There's our theological understanding of who God is, but when we're in the midst of suffering, often it's a struggle to balance what we know to be true of God with what we're actually experiencing in a broken and fallen world. And so Job is is struggling with that. That helps us to to frame, I think, correctly where he's at and what he's saying in the book. Uh, So he's struggling with God. He is a man of integrity, and he's suffering seemingly uh, as an innocent man, as an innocent person. So, uh, as we go further into the book, uh, as I mentioned, the, the opening of the book here in the first five verses frames him as coming from the land of Uz. If you know anything about um, the meaning of that particular term, uh, that situates Job in the land of Edom, uh, which was adjacent to Israel. In fact, I have a, a map here that uh, I'll bring this up and you can see that. Uh, Edom was to the southeast of Israel. Uh, This is a portion of territory that had certain characteristics that I want to talk a little bit about that I think help us to understand what was going on. So Job is from Uz, and his name and his territory are linked in the biblical storyline to the nation Edom. And I want to spend a little bit of time talking about why that is the case uh, first, we see this term, us, appears in Genesis 36. If you have your Bibles, just to turn back to Genesis 36, uh, this is a helpful correlation, I think. Uh, what is interesting is many of the names, both place names and people names, in the book of Job are actually also located in chapter 36 of Genesis. 
And if uh, you look at the beginning of that chapter, it says, these are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Aholibama, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basimeth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Adah bore to Esau Eliphaz. So the first of Job's three friends is named Eliphaz, and uh, here that name is prominent as one of the sons of Esau. Later in the chapter, in verse 28, we find mention of uh, this name, Uz. It says, these are the sons of Deshan, Uz, and Aran. Uh, another name that's prominent in this genealogy is um, also uh, Teman, where Eliphaz comes from. So if we go back to the book of Job, let's just... Uh, Think about this in terms of the friends that come, because this is where I want to spend a lot of time focusing this morning. If you go to Job chapter 2, and we read this little vignette of when Job's friends come, they're coming to offer him counsel. So in Job 2, verse 11, uh, to the end of the chapter, it says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their head toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. So Job's friends come, and I think the the names that they are associated with situate them in Edom. And one of the things that's important to note about Edom is both in biblical history as well as in in the greater ancient Near Eastern records of the time, Edom was particularly associated with wisdom. It was a culture that was known as uh, wise and sophisticated. Genesis 36 tells us they had a kingdom before Israel did, so they had a well-developed Government, they had a reputation for wisdom in the great, greater ancient Near East. And we see this a couple times in scripture. For instance, Jeremiah talks about this in his oracles against the nations. Uh, he says this of Edom, concerning Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, is wisdom no more in Taman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? That's in Jeremiah 49, 7. And so when he speaks to Edom, he talks specifically about their wisdom. And then he pronounces their demise in verse 20. He says, therefore, hear the plan that the Lord has made against Edom and the purposes that he has formed against the inhabitants of Teman. Even the little ones of the flock will be dragged away. Surely their fold shall be appalled at their fate. And so uh, Jeremiah is predicting the demise of Edom, a place that was known for its wise counsel, a place that was known for wisdom in the ancient Near East. So if we... Uh, Go back here. One of the questions that we uh, have to answer about the book is, why is uh, the fact that the friends are from Edom so important? Why is that strategic in the book? And I think one of the answers is, when you look at uh, the ancient Near Eastern uh, wisdom and councils, that uh, Edom was known as a place that had uh, a lot of counsel and wisdom and prudence, even in extra-biblical writings. Uh, so in the book of Ben Sira and other places, Edom was known for its renown. One of the things was renowned for its wisdom. One of the things that uh, archaeologists have discovered is that in the vessels that the Edomites uh, crafted in their pottery and other things, it was common for them to write inscriptions on those pottery vessels that would be wisdom sayings or proverbial sayings. And so they were known as a culture that had the pithy saying, that had wisdom, that had every uh, kind of sophisticated counsel. And so that's the backdrop for the book of Job. So when we come to the book of Job, it helps us to understand when the counselors come, they're going to be perceived as men who bring the best of the best, the best wisdom, the best counsel. They're sophisticated in their outlook and understanding of the world. And so they're going to help Job get resolved. One of the things I, I noticed in studying the book of Job that I think was uh, helpful in terms of framing the book is there are a number of writings like Job in the ancient Near East. They're called uh, Righteous Sufferer Accounts. And in each of these, it's a similar scenario to Job. There's an innocent man who's suffering something, who's going through affliction. And in each of those stories, there's a counselor who comes to aid the sufferer. 
What's interesting about it is in each case, when the counselor comes to offer counsel to the sufferer, the sufferer ultimately relents, follows the advice of the counselor, and is restored to his former place. What this sets up with the book of Job is something of an ancient plot twist, if you will, because Job refuses to do that. He refuses to concede to the counsel of the sufferers. And so I often frame it this way that I think the ancient audience would have expected uh, Eliphaz and the friends to be able to get Job to resolve his problem. That is to acknowledge something that would lead to a resolution. And as the contest goes on, as the dialogue goes on, we know that rather than coming to some resolution, they become more and more entrenched in their own views. Job refuses to admit or acknowledge that he's done anything wrong because he is a man of integrity. And the friends simply turn up the temperature as time goes on. Eliphaz begins rather softly in chapter 4. He sounds like uh, a compassionate counselor. But by chapter 22, he's basically accusing Job of a laundry list of sins. He's gotten so uh, frustrated with Job and so irate that by the end of the book, uh, he's accusing Job of every kind of, of wrongdoing that was possible to do. And so uh, I want to spend a little bit of time here talking about uh, Edomite wisdom and some of the things that uh, relate to Edomite wisdom. Uh, if you know much about Edom, you know that it began as a nation as a result of Esau, uh, and there was a, a conflict between Esau and Jacob, uh, but Edom was situated in a very strategic place. I uh, showed you this map a moment ago. They were situated along the king's highway, and so there was a strategic highway that ran uh, right through Edom, and uh, if you see the map on the right, it would circle around to Babylon and Assyria, and if you followed it this way, it would lead to Egypt uh, and to the Arabian Peninsula. And so uh, Edom was in a strategic place. This is why Genesis thirty-six thirty-one says, These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites, uh, meaning that uh, Edom had a very sophisticated administrative uh, structure, and they were in a prime location to hear the wisdom of the nations. Job himself mentions this. He talks uh, about the stories that were passed among the travelers as they uh, went down these trade routes. So Edom would hear from a lot of cultures and a lot of religions, and it would uh, take the good and the bad and use it in a in a wise way to offer counsel and to offer uh guidance to other nations. We know that there was a lot of interaction between the nations because, for instance, Egypt had goods and services that Babylon didn't and vice versa. There was a brisk trade in the ancient world. Uh, Spices would come from the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, There was a certain type of wood grown in Babylon that Egypt couldn't get, and there were uh, things that Egypt would produce like cotton and other things that uh, Babylon couldn't get. And so a lot of money and goods would (coughs) go through these areas, and Edom reaped the benefits of it. They were situated in such a way where they would uh, benefit from this brisk trade that was going on. And so, uh, when we think about Edomite wisdom, uh, there's a couple things that have been discovered. I just want to spend a moment talking about this. Uh, it was reputable and well-established. It was cosmopolitan, meaning it uh, understood how the world worked and what was going on. It was elusive, and it was theologically rigid. Now, the reason this background is interesting is when Job's friends come to counsel him, they're not just offering uh, willy-nilly what they think is possibly the best answer. They're offering the best counsel that humans could offer at the time. In other words, Edom's reputation for wisdom means when they understood and came to counsel Job, they were offering the best advice that human wisdom could offer. It's the best of the best. And so when they come to Job, there's an expectation that he will listen and he will uh, acquiesce to what they're saying. Now, there's a lot that I could go into in terms of the background of Edomite wisdom and some other things, but I just want to focus on a few uh, key tenets of Edomite wisdom, and I think you have that on your uh, handout, uh, some of the key tenets of Edomite wisdom, the theological principles of Edomite wisdom and their modern echoes. 
Uh, one that God is frighteningly powerful and punitive. The God of the Edomites was a God named Kos. We don't uh, see this developed too much in scripture, but through archaeology and other things, uh, they've identified some of the features of Edomite religion. And one of the things that they emphasized was that God was frighteningly powerful and punitive, meaning that he was a God who rewarded righteousness and punished evil. He was to be feared. He was fearsome. Uh, in, in the worship of this God, uh, their God, Kos, was a storm God. And so he uh, was a God that was frightening in his appearance uh, and in his uh, way of dealing with people. And we know this is the case right from the book of Job itself. We, we see this uh, in chapter 4. If you go to chapter 4 of Job, Eliphaz talks about this spirit that comes to him. Uh, if you look at verse 13, he says, Amid thoughts from visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still. I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants, he puts no trust and his angels he charges with error. And so Eliphaz here is focusing on the fact that God is a frightening God who comes in the middle of the night. He punishes uh, evil and he rewards virtue. And so this was uh, a key feature of Edomite wisdom. Uh, and I think we, we see implications of this, right? Sometimes uh, when we're counseling or when we're thinking about good and evil, right and wrong, we might focus on the fact that God is a fearful presence who's going to punish uh, in a very uh, retributive way. And that's one of the key tenets of Edomite wisdom was that uh, God was retributive. He was going to punish you if you messed up. I think many people have that kind of a view of God that he's out to get me. Whatever I do, uh, if I make a mistake, he's going to zap me. And so this mechanical justice view was very prominent in Edomite theology. A second tenet would be this, that God is far removed from people's concerns and problems. God is far removed from people's concerns and problems. So the Edomites uh, saw God as uh, a storm God, as a God who uh, was uh, transcendent and removed from humanity. And so he was distant from them when they had a problem. Uh, he was far off and removed from their situation. Uh, we see this in Eliphaz. If you skip ahead to chapter 15, in his second speech, he emphasizes this fact uh, verses 14 through 16, this idea that God is, is far off and removed. He says, What is man that he can be pure, or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like Water. In other words, he's saying God is so pure and so holy. He's distant and removed from you. He's not concerned with your problems. And so even if you were to approach him, he doesn't even think the heavens are pure, much less you. You have no business coming to God with your problems because he is far off and removed. And this then uh, brings to the third attribute, which is this. God punishes people for no apparent reason. God punishes people for no apparent reason. Uh, in chapter 22, uh, his third speech, we see this, uh, where he talks about the wicked, uh, and he impugns Job along these lines. If you begin in verse 13, he says, But you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds veil him so that he does not see, and he walks on the vault of heaven. Will you keep to the old way that wicked men have trod? They were snatched away before their time. Their foundation was washed away. They said to God, depart from us, and what can the Almighty do to us? Yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see it and are glad. The innocent one mocks at them, saying, surely our adversaries are cut off, and what they left the fire has consumed. In other words, he's saying, 
God will do His work uh, and He will punish and He will reward. And ultimately, you have to uh, know how to approach God because He's rep- retributive and He punishes and rewards according to His own sovereign will and plan. All right, so where does this get us? This gets us to the point where uh, we see that Job's friends are sophisticated counselors who come from Edom. They have the best of human wisdom to offer. And as they approach Job, essentially what they're saying is, God is like this. He's a fearful God. He's a distant God. He's a God that punishes and rewards according to his will that might seem arbitrary sometimes. So how are you going to get your problem resolved? What Eliphaz is essentially saying is, it's through me, through my counsel, through my wisdom, you'll be able to resolve your situation. You'll be able to get right with God. And so this brings us to our next point, which is uh, where the book of Job comes from, the provenance of Job, meaning where does it come from and its implication for the message of the book. This is set in the patriarchal period. So this means uh, Job, as we read the book, uh, is... Uh, roughly from that time. Uh, this has implications, of course, for the theology of the book. Uh, it, it takes a uh, patriarchal period uh, view of the world. We know Job from the book uh, Sacrifices for His Family. Uh, there's no mention of the Exodus event or of the law, so this is prior to that. So this is a period of time where uh, the patriarchs are living and uh, we have instances of individuals in scripture that know of Yahweh, the true God, men like Melchizedek or Jethro, uh, Moses' father-in-law. And so Job falls into this category. And specifically during this time, as I mentioned, there are a number of writings like the book of Job called ancient Near Eastern wisdom theodicies. And what these writings uh, would do is often have a sufferer who for some reason was afflicted by pain and anguish and a counselor would come to counsel that sufferer and lead him to resolution. Eliphaz is setting himself up in the book to be that counselor. Now, why I think this can help us in terms of thinking about pastoral ministry and counseling and other things is, Eliphaz assumes he has all the right answers, and yet when he comes to Job, he's not able to resolve the situation. And so sometimes I say this is a a ballast or a corrective to overzealous counselors who, because they have the right answers, think that all they have to do is unlock a key or flip a switch and everything will be immediately resolved. Job offers a corrective to that. I'm certainly uh, not against biblical counseling, but I have witnessed instances when uh, even the right kind of counseling is applied in the wrong way. And I think Job is a corrective to that. And so when we look at the character of Eliphaz in particular, uh, we see there's there's a shift from Eliphaz uh, talking about God to actually putting himself forward as a surrogate for God, as if he has the keys to Job's problems, as if he himself can uh, resolve Job's situation in a way that would almost give Eliphaz uh, the role that God himself has. And we could spend a lot of time looking at this. I kind of summarized it in three points. Eliphaz's emphases in his speeches are in line with Edomite wisdom that God punishes sin and rewards virtue as explained by the counselor. In other words, what Eliphaz is saying is, God is a retributive God who punishes and rewards, but I'm the one who knows his scheme. And so if you follow my advice, you can turn your punishment into reward, but you have to do it through my particular way of counseling. A second tenet that he says is God is hidden and must be approached through me. So the fact that God is transcendent in the case of Eliphaz means there's certain truth about God, but only I know it. Because I'm the counselor who has wisdom and knowledge and explanation. And so for you to access this hidden transcendent God, you have to come through me. A third point that I think he makes is that God has a secret character uh, known only to the counselor. In other words, there are things about God and how he runs the world, his scheme, if you will, his uh, order and justice in the world that only I know. 
And so Eliphaz puts him in this, puts himself in this place where he's the one who alone holds the answers to Job's problems. He speaks as if he himself were God. And so this, uh, leads to, uh, difficulties, uh, and, and tension between Job and the other characters in the book. Uh, and so Eliphaz is setting himself up as, uh, a key counselor, the one that Job has to listen to. Now, if, if we're honest, uh, we could probably admit that maybe there have been times in our lives where uh, we've been trying to counsel someone and we've sort of subtly, maybe without realizing it, begun to think that because we have the answers, because we know scripture, that if this person who is suffering would just listen to us, things would be resolved. And I think what the book of Job does is offers a corrective to say, uh, there are times when God's intent and purposes are hidden even to us, the counselor, and we have to simply humbly acknowledge that God is sovereign and that he is the one who's orchestrating what happens and to s- humbly submit ourselves rather than seeking uh, to be the one who uh, has all the answers, who can uh, sift through every problem, offer a resolution to every uh, un- misunderstanding and discrepancy, understanding that God is sovereign and that God is working in these situations. Now, this leads us to the uh, structure of Job, and I just want to mention a couple things, and then uh, we'll we'll get to more of the application in a minute. When you look at the book of Job, it's typically been divided into threes uh, because you have uh, three friends from Job. Uh, three friends who come. It seems that there are three cycles of speeches and all these th- sorts of things. But as I've studied the book of Job over the years, I've come to the conclusion that perhaps a better way of understanding it is to think of it in twos and fours. If you look at page two of the notes, um, you'll notice a couple things. First, there's there are two divine assemblies, right? So there's uh, this, what's called a bifid structure, meaning A, B, A prime, B prime, meaning there's a repetition in the story there's paneling, so there's a divine assembly and then a second divine assembly. And then think of the end of the book, you have two speeches from Yahweh, uh, which replicates those two divine assemblies. And actually, rather than three friends, there are four if you count Elihu as part of that. So twos and fours seem to make sense. And if you put that into the context of the speech cycles, there are actually two sets of eight speeches I think that's interesting because the number seven is completion or perfection, and it's as if to say, this is everything we've got plus one. We're offering everything that humans can possibly say about your problem, even going beyond it. And so uh, on page three, you see uh, how this is structured, Eliphaz to Job, and then Bildad to Job. Job has two monologues that follow that where he challenges God to a legal conflict. He basically says, if I could submit a subpoena to God and appear before him, I would present my case, I would exonerate myself, I would prove that I am innocent and God has miscarried justice in this case. And then what happens? Elihu comes on the, on the scene, uh, he speaks and prepares the way. He's a transitional figure. Uh, who in many ways sets the table for Yahweh to appear at the end of the book. Some have suggested that if if the Lord came before Elihu, it would almost be that he's responding to the behest of Job, and instead he has an emissary who prepares the way for him. And as Elihu is speaking, there's a whirlwind gathering force, and then the Lord will appear uh, and speak to Job. Now, one of the tensions of the book of Job is when Yahweh does finally appear, He doesn't offer a list of answers to why he allowed Job to suffer. In other words, he doesn't appear to Job and say, let me pull back the curtain of heaven, show you what really happened. Let me explain why you're suffering. Let me explain the ins and outs and what my ultimate purpose in this is. The Lord doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, where were you? Where were you? When I laid the foundation of the earth, when I did all these things, when I care for the animals, when I bring snow and storm. In other words, Job, you don't even, you can't even step to the plate to ask the right question. You don't even know where to start. You don't have the faintest inkling of the complexities of the universe. You don't understand uh, what I'm doing. Now, that's not to say that 
the Lord is callous toward Job because we'll see at the end of the book, he's actually compassionate and kind to Job. But the point there seems to be, you want to have your questions answered. The reality is you can't even begin to understand the complexities of the world. And ultimately, the solution is not to answer your questions. It's to have you understand who I am. In other words, the resolution comes when Job sees God, hears from God, and understands God's plan uh, in the person of God's character. Let's look at the end of the book of Job just to get that context. If you turn to chapter 42, Job here answers the Lord. He says, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then he, uh, he quotes from Yahweh, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. He quotes again, Yahweh, Here and I will speak, I will question you and you make it known to me. And he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And so Job is speaking to the Lord, and I think this is what, when uh, the Lord says his anger burns against the two friends because they have not spoken to me what is right, that's literally what it's saying. Job here humbles himself before the Lord. He acknowledges that the Lord is supreme, and he's satisfied because he's experienced firsthand the character and power of God, who the Lord is, and so he humbles himself before the Lord. And then at the end of the book, uh, it says the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. The Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Now, some have pointed this out in, in, in order to say that this almost seems like a discrepancy in the book. In other words, it seems that one of the major points of the book of Job is to say God doesn't necessarily always reward virtue and punish sin, but that he's free uh, and sovereign to act according to his own character and purposes. But then in the end of the book, he seems to reward Job after all. In other words, doesn't that seem to present a tension in the storyline of the book? Because doesn't it seem like God in the end really is retributive after all? That's what a critic would say. Uh, my answer to that is to say, I think the point is to show God is free to be gracious as well. In other words, God can lavish kindness and good gifts on his servants. And in the end, God acts in, uh, in alignment with his character, consistently with his character to be a good and kind God. And incidentally, I think that's why James is right in his interpretation of Job. He says, you've heard of the story of Job, the steadfastness of Job, and how the Lord is kind and compassionate. And I think that's one of the big points of the book is that ultimately God is kind and compassionate. And so uh, this brings us to points of application or what are some implications of this. So on uh, page four there, I have uh, the genre of Job and just a, a few things to talk about in relation to this. I mentioned that there are a lot of uh, writings in the ancient Near East that are like Job, and I would classify this as a wisdom theodicy. What I mean by that is uh, the book of Job is uh, has a lot to say about how God can be a good and sovereign God, and yet evil can also exist in the world, or suffering can also exist in the world. Uh, you may be familiar with the term theodicy. Theodicy, it was coined by Gottfried Leibniz in the uh, 18th century. Uh, and it's basically a qu the question of how can God be sovereign and good and there also be evil in the world? David Hume, a famous skeptic, phrased it this way. He said, is God willing to prevent evil but unable to do so? Then he is not omnipotent. Is God able to prevent evil but unwilling to do so? Then he is malevolent. Is God both willing and able to prevent evil? Then whence evil? And so uh, we think about this question in relation to the book of Job. Some define it as an attempt to justify the ways of God to us. Now, some interpreters would say Job really isn't about theodicy because it doesn't really provide the answers to the questions that we might be asking. 
But I think as you look at the whole, the book of Job has a lot, in fact, to say about innocent suffering. That is to say, how do we help those who are afflicted, who maybe are uh, suffering anguish, not necessarily on account of their own sin, but the sins of others. They're sort of swept up into the maelstrom of a broken and fallen world. How can we offer hope to them and help to them as they navigate that world? And it's important, as I said at the outset, to remember that Job genuinely is a man of integrity. So the tension of the book isn't that there really is some secret sin that Job was harboring, and that's why he suffered. He genuinely is a man of integrity, and yet he's suffered. He's experienced pain, loss, and anguish. And so as I think about this, uh, there are some implications, I think, or or some principles that we can derive from this. And so I just want to spend some time thinking about this. The first would be this. Although much human suffering will remain in the realm of mystery, suffering may be used by God as a vehicle for the transformation of the sufferer. Job is never given a rationale for why God allowed his suffering. In fact, one of the uh, emphases of Yahweh's uh, speeches is that Job never will understand certain things because he is not God. And yet, Job is personally transformed through the process of suffering. When we get to the end of the book, Job admits, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. I despise myself and repent in in dust and ashes. In other words, Job has grown personally through the process of suffering in a way that revolutionizes his response to Yahweh. Before he was contentious, now he is humble and contrite. Before he protested his innocence, Now he admits that God is sovereign and just. And so God used this suffering in Job's life to transform his character. And so this is part of of the reason uh, that God often uses suffering. We know the famous quote from C.S. Lewis that uh, pain is God's megaphone. It's, It's a way that God gets our attention and transforms our thinking. All right, the second principle would be this. All suffering falls within the purview of God's sovereignty. All suffering falls within the purview of God's sovereignty. Uh, what is interesting about the book is Job never decides midway through the book, you know what, I think my theology about God's sovereignty may be wrong. In other words, maybe God didn't really plan this. Maybe this was a surprise to God. No, Job never comes to that conclusion. In fact, his struggle is throughout the book ultimately with God himself. It is God's sovereignty that's the basis of his own inner conflict. Job asks this question at the beginning, shall we receive good from God and not evil? And he understands God is ultimately the impetus behind everything that happens in the book. And so he understands it's uh, within the purview of God's sovereignty. Number three, not all suffering is tied directly to one's personal sin in a cause and effect relationship. And I think this is uh, an important one to understand that sometimes uh, we tend to think if a person is suffering, it's perhaps because they've done something to bring them on, bring this on themselves. Now we know in scripture and other places that the retribution principle is not always wrong, right? We know Israel went into exile because they had sinned against the Lord and violated his covenant. We know that uh, the Lord does punish evil and that there are consequences that come as a result of that. But I think what the book of Job cautions us is to think that we can always connect those dots as if to say we ourselves understand what God's entire purpose in this is. And I've seen this misused in the past. I can think of one famous example Uh, when a storm hit a certain city and a TV preacher said, this is because that city was particularly evil, as if to say, I know why God did that, and it's because of their sin, as if it's a direct cause and effect relationship. And I remember thinking to myself, that's exactly what Job's friends would have said. So I think the book of Job cautions us against that. Uh, Fourth principle would be this, grief has no preset pattern. We must weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. I think this is a Another way of saying this, that no amount of preparation will galvanize the sufferer for the actual experience of personal pain and affliction. And so all that to say, 
we can sympathize with people who are suffering, but often unless we've walked through that same situation ourselves, we don't perhaps understand the full depth of the pain and affliction and anguish. And so what that uh, encourages us to do is that our, our primary impetus ought to be to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to show compassion and sympathy, uh, and to uh, give them space for that and to walk through it with them. Which leads us to number five, there is a space in suffering for genuine lament. There's a space in suffering for genuine lament. I think there's been a healthy movement of late in the church to recover lament. And uh, by that, I mean the fact that um, there perhaps in the past has been a tendency to pretend things are, are great and okay when the reality is we're suffering anguish and we're going through a painful experience. And so I think uh, the book of Job's helps us to see that uh, there's space for uh, venting this to God. That is to say, to wrestle with God through difficulties, through disappointments, not allowing bitterness to take root, but eat, being honest with God as we're wrestling through the experience of what uh, our forebears might have called strange or dark providence. When God brings us through this experience where we don't understand why the suffering is happening, uh, it's not just that we're supposed to put on a happy face, but genuinely and honestly grapple uh, and, and work through these things by crying out to God. I think the Psalms provide us a pattern for that, that we come to God and we, uh, in faith and submission, wrestle through these things with Him. Number six is this, suffering for the believer leads to greater faith not loss of faith. So for a genuine believer, as we go through suffering, as we walk through difficult times, this will strengthen our faith rather than rob us of faith. Uh, D.A. Carson writes this in his book, How Long, O Lord? He says this is the book of Job. At no point does Job abandon faith in God. At no point does he follow his wife's advice to curse God. It is precisely because he knows God to be there and to be loving and just that he has such a hard time understanding such injustice. Job wrestles with God. He is indignant with God. He challenges God to come before him and provide answers. But all his struggles are the struggles of a believer. That is why Job can be praised by God himself for saying the right things. At least he spoke within the right framework. So, He's a genuine believer, and so this deepens his faith rather than robs him of faith. And then the seventh principle, I would say, is this, that God is gracious and compassionate toward the sufferer. Uh, God ultimately extends kindness and grace. As I mentioned, some see this as an inconsistency in the book, uh, but I don't think that's the case. I think the epilogue, the end of the book, demonstrates that God has compassion toward his creation, that ultimately he's a good and kind God. Ultimately, he's free to display grace toward whomever he wills. We know uh, that the scriptures tell us his plans for his people are good. He brings together, he works to bring all things together for their good. Romans 8.28, uh, things that people mean for evil, God turns to good. Genesis 50.20. And although much of this remains veiled in mystery, uh, I think the book of Job illustrates that believers must go forward in faith that God is working for their ultimate good in every situation. Even when things are difficult, even when it's a painful path that the Lord has us on, uh, we need to understand that ultimately this is for our good and ultimately he is working his purposes and bringing them to their right and good conclusion. All right, so this brings me then to some application principles or uh, perhaps some implications that I think uh, we can take from this. One is to beware the omniscient counselor syndrome. What I mean by this is uh, I think I see sometimes in Eliphaz a tendency that's easy to fall into, which is this, to think that we have the answers, uh, that we know the solution, and if the person who is suffering would just submit to what we're telling them, everything would come to a ready and good conclusion. I think what Job does is it offers us uh, uh, some wisdom in holding back from thinking that we always have all the right answers. Sometimes we just need to uh, grieve with those who grieve. Secondly, I would say this, caring for the afflicted means compassion before right answers. Uh, You've probably heard of stories of well-meaning people 
who come up to those who are suffering, and uh, although I think they intend good, they'll, sometimes they'll say things that reflect uh, sort of a, uh, a naive understanding of, of things that people are suffering through, and so uh, in the end end up causing more harm than good. And so we ought to remember that sometimes compassion is what people need before the truth of Scripture. Often they know the truth of Scripture. They need someone to sit with them and grieve with them and help them as they're going through this process. And so uh, Job's friends at least get right the fact that they sit for seven days before they begin to speak. Uh, unfortunately, once they begin to speak, they assume that they can stand in the place of God and lead Job to resolution. But uh, we ought to take a cue there that sometimes it's compassion that's needed uh, more than uh, a specific verse and passage. All right, third, ultimately God provides the balm for the suffering soul that no human can. Job had friends who came to offer him counsel, but in the end it wasn't the friends, even though they had right things sprinkled throughout their messages, it was ultimately God that resolved the issue for Job. It was experiencing the Lord. It was being renewed inwardly through uh, knowing the Lord and and speaking with the Lord and communing with Him. And so ultimately, God is the one that provides the balm for the suffering soul that no human can. And so we help them, uh, lead them to God, but ultimately God is uh, the one who must work and provide uh, care and encouragement. And so He often uses His servants to do that, but ultimately He's the one who does so. And this brings us to the culmination, which I would say is this. Counseling requires wisdom, And God's wisdom comes to culmination in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, Jesus Christ is the solution. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that Jesus is the one whom God made our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so we would be remiss, I think, if we sought to counsel people without ultimately leading them to the Lord Jesus Christ as the solution and the antidote and the balm for their suffering. He is the one that can impart grace. And so we seek to lead the sufferer ultimately to Jesus. And uh, ultimately, that's also connected to the point that when we understand theodicy, theodicy always, I think, converges in the cross. The greatest human evil God uses for the greatest human good to bring salvation out of suffering. And so ultimately, we're leading the sufferer to the Lord Jesus Christ because he Uh, is uniquely able to provide comfort and restoration to a sufferer. And so ultimately, that's our goal, to lead them to a resolution in that way. All right, so that's a quick overview of the book of Job and some things related to suffering. 